buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, your somewhat humble host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group. And I am uh, back from hiatus, uh, editing now back on Lady Hyde and Emmanuel in Sin City. And we will have those out in 2022. And by the time this episode drops, uh, episode 68, which this is, this is dropping at the very end of this year. This is uh, dropping on uh, December 29th. So this will be the final Frank Observer podcast of 2021. And to celebrate that, this episode and the next episode, episode 69, will both be double features. So for this episode 68, we are going back to the beginning of the Franco uh, filmography and starting off with his first two films on this episode. Uh, this will be a double feature episode doing films one and films number two. Uh, be a little bonus deal. I'm going to start off or actually I'm going to end 2021 with two films, one episode, and then start off 2022 uh, 2-2, which is good, twos, and uh, so we'll do that, the films three and four, as a single episode, and then uh, episode 70, we'll be back to the singular films, so uh, so for this one, what we're going to do is, um, I'm going to do the uh, intro, like I normally do, and then I'm just going to have um, single reviews by myself, and just go right into that, right after it and then we'll have the break and then do film two so that's going to be the setup for this so um yeah and i just finished watching we are 18 and uh it's really good so all right here we are uh so this we're going back to the beginning of course and this uh, we go back to volume one of the delirious cinema of jesus franco the title of the book murderous passions uh by mr stephen thrower and uh so yeah this is here we go film number one by uh, actually, feature film number one, because he had done some short films before this. So this is the uh, first feature film from Jess Franco, and it's called Tenemos 18... <clears throat> sorry. Tenemos 18 Enos. We are 18. Also, too, um, the subtitle one I watched says We are 18 years old. So it's either We are 18 or We are 18 years old. Uh, production company, um, Oster Films, SL, out of Madrid, and City Blas Films Madrid, credited on Spanish poster. Theatrical distributors, Filmax out of Madrid, and Latina Films out of Seville. Timeline, shooting date on this, uh, they say is February of 1959. Uh, it was classified for Spanish release on January 24th of 1960, and had its Seville premiere on June 29th of 1961, and finally played Madrid much later on 1967, uh, February 24th of that year. Uh, theatrical running time, Spain, runs in at 78 minutes. Uh, the version I watched was, let's see what I have written down here, uh, 72 minutes, 53 seconds, so that seemed like pretty standard time. Uh, probably that's the um, correct time because of the translation from film to video. Uh, all right, so, okay, uh, credits on this. The cast, really, really interesting cast. Basically, two leads, uh, two female leads, and then a comic male lead, um, and then we have bit players around that. So, um, And it's interesting because the lead on this, uh, Isana Midel, was Franco's fiance at the time. So that's interesting how later on with Lena and everything, uh, how that repeats, you know, down the line. All right, so cast, uh, once again, uh, Isana Midel. She is credited, or her character's name is Maria Jose Lopez Gomez Uriquala. And uh, she's also joined by uh, actress Cheryl Pavez, who plays Pili, uh, Maria Jose's cousin. And those are the two leads, which is interesting because it's almost like a... Uh, uh, Red Lips movie, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll say that on my review. I'm kind of jumping ahead here. All right, so um, and then we have the third lead, uh, Antonio Ozores, cousin Mariano, and he also plays quite a few roles in the film as other characters. He plays old woman, uh, English car thief, uh, Lord Marion, and Lord Marion's son. Uh, then we have Luis Pina as Luis Fernandez Castro and bank robber. 
Uh, Carmen Lozano plays Polly Patterson, Tripoli Dancer, and Lirio Blanco, and in Indian Squaw. Alicia Calderon plays Peluca, Beltrain's girlfriend. Javier Garcia plays Beltrain, Maria Jose's boyfriend. Maria Luisa Ponte plays Maria Jose's mother. Antonio Jimenez Escribano plays Maria Jose's father. Uh, Pablo Senez plays Castro, angry student. Mercedes Alonso and Ibel Vela plays teachers. Uh, Juan Jose Vidal and Rufino Ingles plays the Indian chief. Uh, Emilia Rubio, Barbara Obres with Don Parker and his jazz orchestra as themselves. And uncredited Antonio Vela as the young Lord Marion. Credits, uh, director, I'm sorry, direction, story, screenplay, and music by Jess Franco. Additional dialogue, Antonio Azores. Director of photography, Eloy Mela. Editor, Juan Maria Pisson. Art director, Eduardo Torres de la Fuente. Assistant producer, Luis Garcia Berlanga. Production manager, Carlos Grande. Music performed by Don Parker and his jazz orchestra. Soloist and arranger, Helmut Thiete. Uh, let's see, piano, solos, and clave by Jess Franco. A uh, song, Hey Quien Diste Him, by Jay Galindo. And let's see, assistant directors, unit manager, camera assistants, makeup, set director, additional crew. Okay, here we go. Okay, good. Alrighty, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and give the synopsis on this, um, <clears throat> which I usually do on the review portion, but since I'm going to run this through and then give my review at the end, uh, I'm just going to knock it through with that. All right, so synopsis. This is quite wordy and uh, long, so here we go. Uh, Madrid. Maria Jose Lopez Gomez Ariqua lives with her parents and Pili, her orphaned cousin. The two girls, both 18, share a room and are the best of friends. Their older cousin, Mariano, is a no-good scrounger, adept, adept at getting both girls to give him money. Persuading them that a trip to Andalusia would be a good idea, he sells them a ancient Cherubank, Cherubank, that's in danger of falling apart. It's like a really old, like almost like a Model T car. Uh, charges him for hire of his tent and various household accoutrements, and the two girls set off on their journey. When the car breaks down, they encounter an eccentric man who offers to fix the vehicle. Jumping forward in time, we cut to Maria's room where we see her riding up the adventure, assisted by Pili's suggestions. They exaggerate the encounter with the man to make him more sinister and or they exaggerate the encounter with the man to make her more sinister and bizarre. I'm sorry, with the nun. Huh, that's interesting. Um Coming back cutting back to their travels, we see the girls lose their money. A swindler, who looks just like Mariano, drives off with it, leaving them with nothing. By chance, the girls later spot the car parked in a driveway. The female owner claims her husband, a car dealer, brought it home. Think, tricking the woman, the two girls retrieve the vehicle. The storyline veers back and forth between fanciful depictions of their adventures and the girls' reminisces about what really happened. An encounter with a bank robber, Luis Fernandez Castro, ends with him shooting at Maria while chasing her along a beach. Fortunately, a sentry at a local military encampment sees what's happening and shoots him dead. Later, they accept a lift from a mysterious masked man driving a horse-drawn buggy. At his castle, they discovered he is Lord Marion, who has invited the girls to his abode because they remind him much of his dead love, Polly Patterson, a young nightclub singer from London, Soho, who he murdered after she drained him of his parents' allowance and then spurned his advances. A few years later on, on the run in Tripoli, he strangled another woman. Finally, a third victim resisted death by throwing chlorine in Marion's face. Pulling off the mask, he shows the two girls his hideously scarred features. He looks a lot like Mariano. Lord Marion kills Maria, but Pili pulls a gun on him and shoots him dead. Except that's not what really happened. Back in the bedroom, the girls discuss the truth. The old man was just a drunkard but essentially kind to them. Agreeing that they have gone too far, they decide to tear up the story. Time passes and the two girls find love with their real-life suitors. Pili falls for a gloomy existential poser. Maria settles down with a young man who says he has noticed a change in her since her trip to Andaluca. 
With his encouragement, she finally confronts the reality of her encounter with a bank robber. Rather than simply a vicious criminal, he was a decent man trapped in a life of crime thanks to a nightmarish childhood where violence and death were commonplace. Discussing this sad tale with her new boyfriend, she agrees it's time to start dealing with real life and to put aside childish fantasies. She throws the papers of her diary astray. All right, that's the synopsis of this film. Uh, production notes. Timos 18 Anos. Franco's debut as director starred Isana Midel, Franco's fiance at the time, and Antonio Ozores, a popular comedian who, although just turned 30, was already a veteran of around 35 Spanish films for directors like Juan Antonio Bardem, Jose Maria Froequa, Leon Camus. Kimovsky and Jose Maria Elareta. According to newspapers, ABC Madrid filming on Timos 18 Eros was underway in February 1959. Although the fact that Christmas decorations are displayed in the street in earlier scenes suggests the possibility of an earlier start, possibly December 1958 or January 1959. Uh, Timos 18 Eros was bankrolled by Astur Films, a company nearly uh, newly created by actor-writer-director Luis Garcia Berlanga, which he had already supported Franco's short film. As director, uh, Berlanga's star was in the ascent thanks to his well-received ascendant, thanks to his well-received Benivos Mr. Marshall. 1953, about a rural Spanish village's attempt to woo money from the American post-war Marshall Plan. Unfortunately, his venture in production floundered. Timos 18 Eos struggled to find distribution until two years later, when it premiered for just four days. From Thursday, June 29th to Sunday, July 2nd, 1961, in Seville's Palacio Central Cinema. All right, the review from Stephen Thrower. Not my review, but the review from Stephen Thrower. Uh, it is midnight. The wind blows very strongly outside. These are the first words spoken in a Jess Franco film, read from a private journal by a beautiful young girl. It soon becomes apparent that the text is more fantasy than reality. Midnight scares will play a part in the film, but Tenemos 18 Eos is essentially a comedy with an eccentric, free-willing structure. It tells the picturesque story of two girls, Maria and Pili, who embark on a road trip together. Uh, their adventures, both humorous and exciting, are recounted to us in flashback by Maria's diary entries, although we soon realize she has a marked in tenacity to embroider the truth. The more striking aspects of the film is Franco's willingness to play games. The story involves layers of artifice and irony, unreliable narrators, fantasy presented as fact, pointing to the director's future obsession with the shifting sands of reality and illusion. Whether or not you engage with it will depend on your tolerance for broad humor of the sort that puts rollicking dance band numbers behind dialogue to indicate comic situations. But if you persist beyond the unpromising first reel, you'll find a number of quirks and oddities and a fair amount of inventiveness. Tonality, much of Tenimos 18 Eos, is light and frivolous, yet there's a distinctly experimental approach throughout. This is my book, and I'll write it my way, says Maria, a statement of intent we can impute to Franco, too. Modestly but unquestionably, he is drawing attention to his storytelling procedure, and by extension himself. Ironic genre pastiches such, pastiches such as Maria's encounter with a ruthless bank robber or the insane Lord Marion are counterpointed or even contradicted later. The melodramatic story about the bank robber is shown again in realist mode, and the two girls abandon their horror yarn about the wicked Lord Marion because they agree he was actually very nice. Consequently, we spend much of the film uncertain as to whether we're watching a true account of the girls' adventure or having our leg pulled. Yeah, kind of like later on with Goodfellas, it's interesting because when you have an unreliable narrator, uh, you kind of point in that direction. So, anyway, back to the book. Antonio... Azores, first introduced to us as Maria's cousin, Mariano, reappears several times playing swindlers, murderers, and cheats, an example of the girls using someone they know as a template from which to invent variations. 
This treatment of Mariano takes on another dimension if we consider that Franco too is playing with his characters, arranging them like dolls, trying them out on the page one minute as real people and the next as genre ciphers. The way that Mariano turns up in different guises without the girls recognizing him, he feels authentically dreamlike. And as we realize that Maria has been milking up or has been making up much of what we've seen, the unconsciousness comes into play. She repeatedly casts Antonio as a bad sort, so we can assume that she senses he's a negative force in her life. He's the one who sponges off friends while professing nativity like Skimpole to Dickens' Bleak House. Uh, thus, Maria's creativity functions in the same way as a dream, drawing on the same unconscious storehouse of impressions and intuitions. Although Tinimosi Tineos is a gentle film, a bittersweet flavor predominates toward the end. Pili finds intellectual camaraderie with a serious man, but in a cleverly written exchange, we see that he's a poser, dishonest about his feelings, and lacking genuine maturity. Maria finds love with a man who encourages her to grow up at the expense of her imaginative foolishness. In other words, she falls for a rationalist dullard who fails to appreciate the value and significance of fantasy. As she embraces a reality, in quotes, with her man at her side, it may seem like a happy ending, and it's played that way on the surface with Maria laughing as she throws the pages of her journal to the winds. But there's a worm in the apple of love. The ending feels melancholy, as if neither girl is likely to find true happiness. Maria, in particular, seems doomed to a life attending earnest social realist films with her ever-sensible husband, while pining for the fantastical dreams of her childhood. The approach here is a reminiscence of Douglas Sirk, whose ironic Hollywood weepies feign closer with deliberately hollow and unsatisfying happy endings. Fortunately, Franco himself was not so easily dissuaded from the dreams and nightmares of the fantastique. These scattered pages from Maria's notebooks land like seeds in the fertile soil of his imagination, growing in the wind and wondrous monstrosities that await you in the rest of this book. All right, Franco on screen. Franco does not appear in the flesh, but his personality haunts the film. A fantastist, I'm sorry, a fantasist who creates ghoulish tales, a man who can charm money from just about anyone he meets, and most of all, an unreliable narrator whose version of events can never be entirely trusted. Cast and crew. Mariano's fantasy guises gave comic actor Antonio Ozores plentiful opportunity to display his skills. He had already appeared in more than 30 Spanish films in supporting or minor roles, beginning with Edgar Neville's The Last Horse, 1950. His first professional encounter with Franco was on Juan Antonio Bardem's Felices Pasquas, 1954, for which Franco was assistant director, and their acquaintance was revived two years later on Vivi de Novis, a.k.a. Honeymoon, 1956, a skilled improviser, improviser. He is often he often made up comedy routines on the fly, and indeed he receives a credit for additional dialogue on Franco's film. Director of photography Eloy Melel would go on to shoot Franco's Vampiresa's 1930 and a handful of genre delights such as The Invisible Gladiator 1961, Medusa Against the Son of Hercules 1963, and Death on a Rainy Day 1967, the later produced by future Franco collaborators Adrian Hooven and Pierre Comencey. Head of Oster Films, Luis Garcia Berlanga remained sympathetic to Franco during his battles with the Spanish censors, not least because he shared his taste for risque material. Berlanga edited and published a collection of erotic literature in 1977 called La Sonorisa Vertical, The Vertical Smile, as well as awarding annual prizes for the best erotic novels published in Spain. Music. The insane comic music by Don Parker and his jazz orchestra is abandoned during Count Marion's flashback within a flashback in which we see how he became a sociopathic killer. Here the music consists of the innards of a piano being scraped and twanged, very much in the homemade avant-garde style. <clears throat> that would become the norm for many future Franco films, including, of course, the awful Dr. Orloff, 
one suspects that Franco himself is tearing these sounds from the instrument. All right, location, uh, Despinaros, a region in Yain, in eastern Andalusia, the seaside resort town of Rota, in the province of Cadiz, Dona National Park, and the nearby town of Sanlúcar de Bermede, the Guadalajara River in Seville, the girls' boat trip goes beneath the Puente de Terana and Madrid. The interior of Lord Marion's castle looks suspiciously like the residence of a certain Dr. Orloff, whose acquaintance we shall soon be making. Studio. Estudio Balestros Essay, Madrid. Connections. Antonio Ozore's appearance in multiple roles is redolent, redolent of Alec Guinness's in 1949's Kind Hearts and Coronets, a film Franco very much admired. This being the first feature film in Franco's career, here's a brief list of things that will make multiple reappearances in later films. Hey, could a, a list here, which I do myself. All right, here's a list here. Um, two beautiful female protagonists bonded by intimate friendships, yeah, like the future Red Lips, uh, numerous traveling shots from a car, Action by the Sea, Gangsters and Criminality, A Woman Performing on Stage at a Nightclub, that was actually on my list too, A Horribly Scarred Monster Attacking Young Females, and most importantly, Unreliability Concerning the Boundaries of Fantasy and Reality. Very nice. Alright, uh, other versions. To Franco's intense annoyance, the Spanish censor board interfered with his preferred cut of the film. In an interview published by Alex Mendebol in 2009, he described the videotape released in the 1980s as a chopped-off version. The original was 10 minutes longer and has never been shown. The justification of the character of the fugitive, Luis Pena, was cut with this cut they gave me. He looks like a gangster and a bastard, and he was not. Uh, and they also cut the final scene, which was more explicit with clear to the public, much clear to the public. Fortunately, the vital scene with the gangster is intact on the Spanish DVD version, as is the ending. That's what I've seen, yeah. Uh, only one member of the official censorship board appre appreciated the film, Franco's film, Franco's friend, Jose Luis de, Lo de Bildos, with whom he had recently co-written the comedy Luna de Verano. Franco explained, he defended it as best he could, but the ministerial establishment was ready to fuck me, so it was hopeless. Uh, it was a taste of things to come. Franco would later suffer major problems with the Spanish censors. Uh, problematic. The following actors have currently listed on IMDb as unconfirmed. Okay, never mind. Uh, press coverage. Uh, Seville's ABC newspaper commented, perhaps if carried off with more rhythm and less disjointed reiteration of its theme, the film would have been better. It's in general, there is too much effort to sustain the vermicitilitude at all costs, and what much could have been a gentle but distracted film, however confused, losing all naturalness and grace in the process. However, the reviewer went on to acknowledge that the part in which the aspiring novelists travel through Andalusia is in an old automobile. Keep in mind that all this is a dream and nothing is real, is well executed, and supplies scenes of vitality and easy humor that are fun to watch, in which beautiful scenery captured with excellent color photography provide the best moments of the film. All right, so that's the uh, early part written uh, on the film by Stephen Thrower. Now I'm going to give my review of the film and what I thought of it, so... I'm going to be a little shorter on this one. Um, okay, so I'm going to go through and uh, kind of do uh, the list along with the uh, deal. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, We Are 18 Years Old, film number one, 1959. Um, I thought they, they start off, it started off with a really cool title sequence that I liked, um, kind of like a cartoony deal, uh, really colorful, interesting, that you something really jumpy that... Uh, doesn't really show a lot in Franco's different periods later on, the 70s periods and that. And this is more of a really film opening, which is really cool. You have like a little comic guy and stuff, and you see that. Um, funny, quick opening sequence I like. Um, 
the the editing of this is a lot quicker, especially the beginning section with the family and the daughters and everything getting introduced in that. It's it's really a good steady pace, and it reminds me a little bit of like a Wes Anderson or something. Uh, like the first five ten minutes with the family and the girls in school and going to college and introducing all the characters and setting up who everybody is and that I thought it was really interesting um, and definitely ahead of its time. Um, a different feel, more of like a '90s feel that was in 1959. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you have uh, a mirror. Sh- okay, so also too, there's no nudity in this film. So uh, there's no like uh, two minutes in first nudity. Yeah, no nudity in this film because it's obviously in Spain and in 1959. Uh, so, um, but you have a mirror shot right away. A uh, really cool mirror shot in the beginning, um, and then you have basically the introduced the two gals one of the gals like loves boys and loves princes and that's her fantasy and the girl loves like pop culture and she's into music and and, and she's more the the sidekick the the cousin uh and then uh you have the other cousin mariano who's basically needs money as he's like a card from card losses and that which is funny because that's almost like in um uh, shining sex and um i mean uh midnight party later on with lena's boyfriend so you have him like um, always losing money, and she has to do these things for the money. Give him, and he makes up money, makes up stories about card games. And he's a swindler, which that's a character Franco used a lot later on. So, um, and yeah, and then you also have the two women, uh, the redhead and the brunettes, almost like the red red lips girls later on. Um, and it's cool that you have it from the female uh, perspective from these two girls, uh, their storytelling and, and going through which uh, usually is predominantly male, so it's cool to have it from that female point of view going through there. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that funky yellow uh, car uh, for the road trip, um, and uh, and you go through, you start seeing it happen, and then when it cuts back to her writing, and then you realize, oh shoot, this is just something that she's writing, and it's a story, and then it becomes a film or a movie, and you realize it's just a movie compared to a story, so... That flipping storytelling technique is really good. Like he talks about changing the boundaries to reality and fantasy. So, and Franco does that a lot later in his films, and uh, it, was, it was really interesting. And it's definitely ahead of its time. So, um, the storytelling technique in this is really good. Um, you have a body of water. Um, so let me go through the list. So yeah, you have body of water in this at this time. Uh, you have body of water, sailboats, boats, palm trees. Um, we have sound effects, but no jungle, jungle sound effects. Uh, number six, chained up person, no chained up persons. Uh, you do have um, a dancer dancing on stage. Uh, no stripping, though, of course. You have uh, couples dancing in the beginning. The girls uh, with the parents and they had in the room, kind of like club dancing. Of course, there's jazz music. Uh, not a lot of excessive zooms or out-of-focus shots on this. Um, mirror shots, like I said, there's a few good ones in here. Not that many, but two or th- maybe three. Uh, 13, mind control theme, no. Uh, with no Lena, of course, there's no magic tongue scenes, there are no red lights, and of course, no sheep swinging rug, no masturbation, uh, with a letter C item, of course, or any masturbation at all. Uh, no mad scientist, although there is a, a killer that lives in a castle that murders women, kind of like a Phantom of the Opera, or like a Dr. Orloff or something, so. But, uh, not a mad scientist, but a, kind of a mad killer, you know. So that's a half point. Um, fish tank shots, no. 19, talking parrot. No talking parrot, but in the beginning, in the dance club scenes, there's a guy talking about a talking parrot in a joke, and he says, I only smoke big cigars, or little cigars. And then he tells another parrot joke, so there's like a lot of talking parrot jokes. So it was interesting that this first film, there's jokes about talking parrots, so that's something he goes to later on. Uh, number 20, end credits, yes or no. Yes, and 20 goes with 21, handwritten notes, because the last thing is a handwritten piece of paper that says F-I-N, Finn, which is the end credits, and it's those two tied together, which is kind of funny. Uh, Number 22, spiral staircase shots, no. 23, inept cops, no. Uh, 24, belly chains, no. And not really any kinks or any kind of um, interesting things, no S&M in this film earlier, nothing like that, so... That's off that. So that's the list on this. Uh, the list on these first few films are probably going to be shorter. Um, but uh, I like that Stephen Thrower had remarked on some key elements in this film as the two women and the travel by car and a few things that pop up over and over again in Franco's later films. Um, so yeah, so we have um, uh, the bank robber that was shot by the soldier scene that he talks about is really interesting because like the bank robber is like dressed like a kind of like a... 
roaring mob, like roaring was roaring thir- roaring forties or like a forty style mob guy with like a white tie and a fedora or whatever, not fedora, but like white tie and suspenders. And then the soldier shooting him looks like almost like a Napoleon Bonaparte kind of a old style soldier. So that was kind of interesting. The cross and styles and, and genres, uh, and decades between that two characters. Um, so let's see, you have that. Um, and let's see, yeah, parrot joke. I talk about talking, um, you know, dancing with couples and then, uh, the monster in the castle scene I thought was really cool. I liked the sequence of, oh, and there was a sound effect when the baby was killed or when the baby was born of the mo- the guy who turns out to be the monster. Um, he, and his scene where he's a little kid, he shoots his grandpa. That was pretty creepy. Um, and, uh, yeah, this, his scarred face, you find out what happened to him and all that stuff. And that, that whole scene was pretty, pretty monstrous and pretty interesting that, the film kind of changed from a funny story to something kind of scary and horrific and had a little bit of a Jack the Ripper vibe later on when uh, he was kind of going after the showgirl and following her after the club and stuff. So there's a that sequence is really good. It's uh, You see some of his later style in, in that sequence there. Um, then we find out that girl, the guy was only a drunkard and that the girls just kind of exaggerated him for the writing of that. Um, and then, yeah, in the very end, you have the handwritten note uh, versus Finn and uh, yeah, this version is seventy-two minutes fifty-three seconds. Um, this I got from um, online, but also too, I noticed that uh, if you look up T E N E M O S eighteen A N O S, which is the title of the film, uh, on YouTube, it's there on YouTube and it's in Spanish. But if you go to settings and change to auto translate to English. There's a English subtitled version of this free on YouTube. So, yeah, if you want to find it on YouTube, it's there. Tenemos eighteen enos. So, yeah, you can check it out for free on YouTube and save the money. But yeah, it, it's uh, you know I, I'll tell you what, this film is different than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I didn't know it was in color, which was cool. I thought black and white because you know Orloff and all it's in black and white. So I thought it, that's how this would be. But I uh, know it's in color and. Um, it was very, really cool. Actually, it was it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Um, story was good, good editing. I liked the two leads, very attractive gals, um, and it's interesting that that the lead was Franco's uh, fiance at the time. I thought that was interesting how that marks his career. Um, you see a lot of his further things that he is into presented in this film for the first time, so that was cool. Um, yeah, and I recommend it. It's, it's actually a pretty pretty fun film. Uh, not something I'd watch over and over again, but yeah, I'd, I'd watch it again one more time with somebody or something, but uh, or put it in the background. But uh, yeah, it, it's not bad. Uh, it's a good feature film for him, um, and uh, you could tell with this film that he had talent, and he had a good style of, of storytelling, and uh, he knew his chops, had some good shots here. Uh, pretty simple, uh, pretty creative, and uh, it's, it's good, good little film, so no, I, I definitely enjoyed it, so... Um, yeah, so that, that's going to wrap up, uh, this half of this double feature and, uh, do the next film, film number two coming up, um, after the break. So go ahead and, uh, pause this if you'd like, go get yourself some drinks, something to eat, go to the bathroom or whatever you want to do. And, uh, after the break, I will return with film number two, uh, Red Lips, Operation Red Lips. So... Alrighty, here we go. Film number two after the break. Stay around. Thank you. Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, returning once again on this second half of episode 68. Uh, Film number two. Labios Rojos, Red Lips. Uh, this is film two of a special year-end double feature episode of the Franco Observer podcast. And uh, once again, I'm Jason Rudy. And uh, on this special episode, the year-end of 2021, I decided to review two films, the first two films of Mr. Jess Franco. Um, the first was We Are 18, and the second is uh, Re- Operation Red Lips or Red Lips. Um, 
it's also known as. Um, but yeah, usually red lips, labios rojos. So um, on this one, what I'm going to do is once again, since it's just me doing it and it's a double feature, I'm going to go ahead and uh, condense it together into one of uh, – go through and give you all the printed text from Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1, by Mr. Stephen Thrower. And then I will give you my review after his, uh, all the text on that, and go over the list of what things I noticed and uh, my thoughts on everything. So, um, And this film, actually, uh, before we get started, I got from Trash Palace. Uh, I got the DVD of it. It was a good, clean... Um, black and white film uh it had spanish language with english subtitles and it was a good good print so i uh, recommend it at uh, www.trashpalace.com is where i got mine so it's good good one there all right so here's the all the uh, skinny on red lips labios rojos red lips spain 1960 alternative titles operation Leveres rose rogues uh, French theatrical, uh, Le Vire Rogues, Rouges, it was Rouge or Rogue, no, Rouges, I'm sorry, Operation Le Vire's Rouges, uh, yeah, it's red, uh, Le Vire's Rouges, um, production companies, Alamo Films out of Madrid, and Ciblas Films out of Madrid, theatrical distributors, Procenes SA, Latina Films from Seville, Ciblas Films from Madrid, Spanish re-released, and Les Films Hustocks from Paris. Timeline shooting date, 1960. It just says, interesting. So I guess it was the year. Uh, announced to Spanish press, uh, December 6th of 1960. The Seville premiere was in March 1st of 1963. Uh, French visa number issued was june 14th of 65 and it played france june 14th of 65 yeah about five years after it was released and we'll learn why um it took five years to play all right uh theatrical running time spain 97 minutes which is a shame actually because it's a good film so um all right so cast once again uh her second appearance is isana midel plays the lead christina which was franco's fiance at the time and uh, on a side note, before we get started, it's interesting uh, watching her. I can kind of see where he liked Soldad Miranda because she has that Soldad Miranda vibe. And I can see why he was obsessed with Soldad for that short while. Um, not romantically, but just her spirit because I'm sure it reminded him of hers. Uh, and that was his first kind of person to get going with this film. So, yeah, it makes sense. All right, uh, cast. Uh, Isana Medell plays Christina. Javier Armet plays Pablo a.k.a. Raddick. Lena Canales plays Lena. Lena, it's funny too, and then the other girl's name is Lena, um, which was interesting. Um, Antonio Jimenez, Jimenez Escribano plays Alexis Coleman. Felix DeFoss plays the fake Raddick. Neron Rojas plays Carlo Moroni. Anne Castor plays Lola. Manolo Moran plays Inspector... Fernandez, Ven, Venanacio Muro plays Carlos, Pablo Sanz plays Coleman's younger henchman, German Vega plays Coleman's older henchman, Jose Canales plays a Stardust club pianist, Enrique Juleves plays Guillermo Hildego, well, that's a long name, uh, plays Coleman's chauffeur, Ricardo Menendez. Luciano Franco and Luis Minreal plays Stardust Bartender 2. What do you have three names for? That's weird. Uh, Jose Morales plays Stardust Bartender 1. Uh, Waiter with Message. I don't get all these guys' names. Uh, Geronimo Montero plays Foca the Parrot Seller. See, parrots again. Uh, Juan Casalia. Casalilia plays Pablo, Stardust Club owner manager. J. Neron Rojas. Nothing, okay? Uncredited, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Jess Franco is off-screen voice calling for help. So, first appearance of Jess Franco. All right, credits. Uh, director Jess Franco, screenplay Jess Franco and Manuel Pilares. Uh, directors of photography, Juan Morin, Emilio Forescott. Editor, Antonio Gemino. Art director, Eduardo Torre de la Fuente. 
Music, Antonio Garcia Cano. Songs, Jess Franco. Producer, Jose Maria Monias. Production manager, Ignacio Gutierrez. Assistant production, Oscar Gomez de la Serna. Alberto Vinas. Assistant directors, Enrique Villaselma and Javier Gonzalez. Camera operator, Ricardo Andreu. Uh, let's see. Okay. Still photography, Miguel Guzman. Orchestrizations, Franco Garcelli. And uh, what else we got here? Sand recorders. We can skip all that. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and do the synopsis and just run it through. Uh, Madrid, uh, Cristina and Lola, which was, of course, Isana Midel and Ana Castor. Um, two pretty girls run a detective agency called Red Lips. They are hired by Kalman, a wealthy diamond collector, to retrieve a precious stone they are told has been stolen by a man called Raddick. Kalman's information indicates that Raddick is due to fly into Madrid that day. The girls stake out the airport, but notice that as Raddick leaves, he is being trailed by two men, Pablo and Fred. Christina seduces Fred, while Lola follows Raddick to a hotel, retrieving what she believes to be the stolen diamond, but which is in fact a fake. Before leaving, she calls Inspector Fernandez and tells him where to come to arrest the thief. However, Pablo, villainous manager of several shady nightclubs, arrives on the scene after Lola leaves, kills Raddick, and steals the real diamond. The police accuse the Red Lips girls of the crime. Commissioner Fernandez, however, is not concerned and gives the girls ten days of freedom to provide evidence of their innocence and help arrest the culprit going undercover as singers in one of Pablo's nightclubs on the Costa Brava. They approach a mobster who immediately falls in love with Lola. Coleman arrives at the club, escorted by his secretary, Maroni. Christina and Lola use their powers of seduction to unmask Pablo along with Coleman, who is actually a murderer, to save the reputation of their detective agency. Production notes with Tinamos 18 Anos languishing unreleased. Franco turned out scripts for two more Austor productions. Leguaner de f los I'm sorry. Uh Leguaran Los Francis nineteen fifty nine, for which his co writing credit was carelessly omitted from the credits. And Anna Rosa, both were directed by Leon Kilmovsky. The opportunity for Franco to direct again came through the auspices of Alamo Films. But like a motor who stubbornly refuses to fire up, Franco's fortune stalled again. Labios Rojos fell foul of financial irregularities when Alamo failed to follow through on the deal, which led to the crew walking off the set to protest at unpaid wages. Spanish distributor... Blas Films stepped in to complete the film in return for distribution rights. Partially as a result of this, Labios Rojos became the second Franco film to relinquish unreleased. It was announced to the press on December 6, 1960, through an advertisement placed by the obscure Seville-based distribution company Latina Films, who offered it, along with Tinimos 18 Eos, amid a ragbag of productions from Portugal, West Germany, um, Brazil and Spain. Uh, posters suggest that Libios Rojos was re-released by in Spain by Procyonus later in the 60s. However, no one took the bait. It was not. It was to be another three years before Libios Rojos would see the light of a Spanish projector. All right, review. Uh, essentially, a light-hearted film. Libios Rojos mixes frivolity with film noir to create an amusing but not entirely convincing cocktail. Our stars, the crime-fighting Red Lips girls, are sweet and cheerful. The criminals they encounter less convincingly realized. 
ultimately, Franco comes down on the side of fun, with the danger levels rather subdued. It certainly looks very striking. The cinematography by Juan Marain is very much of a piece with later Franco crime films like Morete de Silva and Blues, Death Whistles of Blues, and the excellent Rafifi in the City. Uh, the setup is agreeable to the Red Lips girls are crime fighters who act outside the law, but rather like Sherlock Holmes, enjoy embarrassing the police with the results of their endeavors. For instance, in an early scene, we see a man tied up to a tree with a note attached declaring, Good evening, Inspector. I'm giving you Fokka as a gift. He's responsible for cheating a fellow American millionaire. In the cleverest conceit of the film, the girls present themselves as a single entity, Red Lips, thus subverting expectations and protecting their true identities. The idea would recur in Awful Dr. Orloff, in which two killers are confused as one by the police, working from conflicting eyewitnesses' accounts. The girls mask their identities by other more comedic means, for instance, wearing clothes, clothes pegs on their nose and adopting squeaky voices. Soon, however, their games lead them in, or land them into trouble. Acting on behalf of a client, they break into a man's room to retrieve what they think is a stolen diamond, only to discover later that someone entered the same room afterwards and killed the thief. Uh, consequently, they find themselves uh, murder suspects, having left their boastful red lips calling card to taunt the victim. In later chapters of the Red Lips saga, the girls remain on top. Here they are out of their depth. Wiley, Wiley Inspector Fernandez doesn't really believe they killed anyone, but he uses the threat of murder charge to manipulate them, making him the problem solver and the girls the reluctant stooges, not a formula to which Franco would return. Uh, the chief pleasures of La Bios Rojos are its stylish, sometimes clever, photography and its bird's nest of double dealing intrigue franco has fun with usual camera with unusual camera angles which is true including a classic through a glass coffee table shot that should tickle anyone familiar with mel brooks's high anxiety and plot wise he sends the viewer chasing narrative switcheroos across treacherous shifting sands of information Ultimately, though, neither the trickiness nor the nourishness are quite enough. The Bios Rojos may be busy and fleet-footed, but it's too detached to really fly. While what's lacking is the essential Franco ingredient, eroticism, making this a cute but slightly and arid version of an idea done much better a few years later in the sexier Sadis Erotica also known as Succubus, uh, and the loopier Kiss Me Monster. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, that's the other two Red Lips films, my bad. Um, yeah, Sidus Rodicor and Kiss Me Monster. Um, okay, cast and crew. Um, Isana Medel, playing Christina, was Franco's fiancée at the time, having already starred in Timos 18 Anos. Franco was unhappy with her performance, which suggests a possible reason for their breakup soon afterwards. That's too bad. I thought she was actually really good in this. Um, Anna Castor, Lola, would turn up again in Franco's The Sadistic Baron von Klaus, 1962, and The Diabolical Dr. Z, 1965. Uh, Felix DeFoss later appears as a police inspector in The Awful Dr. Orloff and plays Colonel Mendoza in Franco's El Lirano, 1963. Uh, he maintained a busy career in Spanish film and TV. Um... Right until his death in 1990 at the age of 94, Antonio Jimenez Escribano, the doc, diabolical Dr. C. Sinister Dr. Zimmer, makes his first appearance for Franco. He played in many other Franco films of the 60s. Oh yeah, he's the main guy in this with the goatee, that's cool. Um, including Ratina de Tabron, Vampiris 1930, La Morete Silva de Blues, Rafifi, uh, Attack the Robots, and Golden Horn. Uh, Labios Rojos was shot by Emilio Forescott, a highly efficient professional in the 1960s, who went on to shoot a pair of excellent thrillers for Italian giallo specialist Sergio Martino, uh, which are The Strange, Vices, Strange Vice of Miss Ford and The Case of the Scorpion's Tail, 1970 and 71. 
Evidently, falling on hard times later in life, he fell in step with Paris-based Euroscene. After shooting their exploitation films, Hell Train, also known as Last Train for SS, his last credit as cinematographer, was a film sometimes misattributed to Jess Franco, uh, Alan Derulo's abysmal cannibal terror, 1980. Note, uh, Antonio Garcia Cano played a part of the score with songs by Jess Franco, the Wes Wesley Band, and Franco Grassi. Cano is almost as obscure as the film itself, having scored only two other Spanish productions, one in 1949 and another in 1953, occupying himself mostly on musical theater productions in Madrid. Uh, locations, possibly the south of France, around Marcel, which might explain the film's otherwise mysterious French production connection. Connection. Uh, Labios Rojos introduced the Red Lips Girls, who would pop up again and again in Franco's Sedis Erotica, Kiss Me Monster, La Grande's Emreduces, Opolo de Fuego, and La Chica de la Labios Rojos. Uh, Antonio Jimenez Escribino plays a villain called Kalman, K-A-L-L-M-A-N, a name destined to recur in at least four more times in Franco's filmography. Uh, Neron Rojos plays a criminal called Moroni, the first of five times. And Felix de Faust plays the earliest of 15 Franco characters called Radek, R-A-D-E-K or R-A-D-E-C-K. 15 times um, Radek was used in Franco films. So there's a good little uh, thing there. It's a good little tally if people want to know. There's 15 times Radek was used in Franco films. Uh, Maroni is five times. And uh, Coleman is at least four, four, like five times at least. Okay, cool. Uh, the plot, with its detective heroines blamed for a murder committed after they vacated the building, will ring bells for anyone who's seen the 1972 crime thriller La Sabranales. Yep. Uh, in Pulp Fiction, the first hard-boiled female detective duo sprang from the imagination of writer Clev Adams, Violet McDade, and Nevada Alvarado were two formidable females who debuted in a short story called Page Violet McDade, published by Clues Detective Stories in 1935. As Okay, um, let's skip that. Uh, okay, other versions. Uh, Alan Petit in Malco Files points out that although there is a French version of the film, it was never shown in a Parisian venue and does not even appear in the otherwise very thorough general film analysis documents provided by the Catholic Church. Um... Okay. Yeah, so that that. Uh, press coverage. Belated coverage from ABC and Delucia was fairly positive. Uh, the adventures of two cheerful girls who become private detectives caused a series of amusing incidents highlighted by the performance of Manalo Moran playing a police commissioner who in his own way shows a as much efficiency as any Scotland Yard inspector, although it may not seem so. The adventures occasionally even choreographic in nature in which the girls get involved Involve situations and scenes of intrigue and humor at times successfully amuse. That's funny. All right, so that's what they have written on, uh, Stephen Thor has written on uh, Labios Rojos. So now I'm going to talk to you about what I thought about Labios Rojos and uh, all that stuff. Um, yeah, it's uh, black and white, which is funny because his first film was color, and then the second one here is black and white, which uh, was kind of odd to me that he did that. But um I enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, it kind of reminded me of just like a typical Hollywood film of like the 50s, um, even though this was uh, 1960. Yeah, like late 50s style. It seemed contemporary. A lot of cool angles, a lot of floor level angles, Dutch angles uh, from the floor angle looking up and just he had a lot of interesting uh, camera um, angles that he didn't really use a lot of later on, um, even though he does have, but here it's a lot quicker. Um, his pace is quicker. He has more camera setups, a lot more angles used, kind of showing off a little bit when he's young. This is only like his second feature, so you can see how he would do that. Um, let's see. Um, you have right off the bat, uh, let's see, you have right off the bat chained up person because you have the person that's handcuffed in the beginning left by the uh, girls. You see a lot of handcuffed people in this film um 
And uh, there's a handwritten note, of course, by the Red Lips girls. So you have right off the bat uh, a chained up person and a handwritten note, number 21 on the list, Franco Franco list. And, uh, of course, uh, number six right off the bat. And then you have uh, inept cops because they're not doing their work. Although the cop in this is good, and, and he does, he's not inept at the end. But in the beginning, the girls are doing his job, and he's pissed off about it. So, um, And then you have also uh, number 19, talking parrots. Not talking parrots, but there's always talking about parrots in this film. So these first two films, there's the... Uh, talking about parrot jokes and then other people selling parrots and stuff about parrots so uh okay and then uh is there, I, I caught there's a couple like breaks in between scenes like maybe it was planned for selling for tv or something because during certain sequences it would go to a black screen for like 10 seconds or less and come back up um which was almost like tv breaks so that was interesting and of course uh Stephen Thor talked about uh, Raddick is introduced, which is the first time used in many, many Franco films. Um, same as last film, uh, where he has two females as the lead, and of course his fiance, the kind of redheaded gal that reminds me of uh, Soldat Miranda. Um, and I thought she does really good here, even though he didn't care for her performance. I guess maybe it was like a personal thing they were going through or what, because they broke up after this. But I uh, know she's really good. You have her as kind of the worker of the group. The other gal is, uh, once again, the one that kind of listens to records and is more carefree and likes to sleep all the time. The other one's busting her butt doing the work. Like in the other film, she was the writer doing all the writing, and the other one was kind of pitching in and giving ideas. Um, so that was kind of similar to that. Um, and both the gals are very attractive, very good actresses, um, really beautiful leads, um, which you see that he does later on. That's one of his keys, so... He always likes two females, especially good-looking females as, as the leads. Um, you have a spiral staircase shot, just a little bit in this, number 22 on the list. And then, of course, with the handcuffs, number 16, 6. Um, and uh, we do have, um, there's cool, there's like a double-double cross of the Red Lips girls that they talk about in the synopsis where uh, they get switched and they get set up. Um, there's also, which he didn't throw talks about, um, they mentioned the Flamenco Club, uh, which Franco used many times in many films, um, including um, Les Abranales and uh, a lot of other stuff. So yeah, the Flamenco Club's used in this. Uh, there's a dancer on stage, and they call it the gold star in the dubbing, but it's the stardust on the sign, so I think it's just the mispronunciation of it, but uh, I don't know if it's a different club. Um, and they say they're exotic dancers, and uh, so we have um, dancing uh, scenes on stage. Supposed to be stripping, but they're not stripping, but, also, but they're still exotic dancers, so I'll count it. And then there's also scenes of people dancing in the club, so we have number seven and number eight. And then also you see uh, when the girls get hired to the club for exotic dancers, they go up to their own hotel room, and from their room you see the body of water, and also... Um, Later on, we have rowboats, so we have that coming on, which uh, does number one, body of water, number two, sailboat. Uh, actually, no sailboats in this, just regular boats, rowboats. Um, number three, number four, palm trees. There is palm trees. Five, jungle sound effects. There's bird sound effects in this. Of course, there's uh, number six and chained a person. Number seven, dance scenes we talked about. Eight, club scenes dancing there is. Nine, uh, jazz music later on in the film. Uh, no excessive zooms or out-of-focus shots. He's really tight on these, which is really good. Something he doesn't do till later. Number 13, mind control themes. No. Uh, 14, magic tongue. No Lena, so there's no magic tongue. <laughs> uh, 15, red light. I'm not sure. It's in black and white, so I'm going to say no. 16, uh, sheepskin rug or masturbation. Nope, not in these films. These are early black and white, classy Spanish films, so no nudity at all or no eroticism. Uh, 18 fish tank shots, no, 19 talking parrot, no, they're talking about parrots, but no talking parrots. Uh, number 20, in credits, yes or no, yes, it says Finn. Uh, 21, handwritten notes, I said already, yes. Number 22, spiral staircase shot, yes. 23, inept cops, yes and no, starts off as yes, ends as no. Uh, 24, belly chains, no, and 25, kink list, none of that. All right, so back to my review. Got the list out of the way, so... Because we were kind of hitting all those main ones coming up here anyway. So uh, so then we have um, the, the girls' exotic dancers, and they do a cool exotic dance. And we see the guy watching them as they do their um, 
their um, dance, their audition, but we don't get to see it. And he says, "Oh, the contortions! Either we should lock them in a hotel, or we should lock them in a lock them in a lock them in the room, or it'll be the act of the year." So with the contort, like either they're going to lock them away and make them their girlfriends, or or put them on stage. So it's funny. Uh, but we don't get to see what they're doing, but we just get to see the guy's reaction. And later on, we get to see the girls dancing uh, before the crowd, like Franco likes to do much later on. Um, and then uh, we see the Stardust Club, we talk about it in English. And um, there's a cool scene where these guys are taking the guy out to kill him. And he, he talks about, oh, I missed the movie. He goes, what'd you miss? He goes, a Western. He goes, oh, not just a dumb film. He goes, yeah, but this had Alan Ladd, and it's in Cinemascope and in color. So once again, they're kind of referencing another film and kind of the the beauty of movies, which uh, something like Tarantino did later on. So it's kind of funny watching Franco do this in his second film, something that that Tarantino kind of copied, maybe not copied, but did the same thing as well. So it's interesting that's something they don't talk about. And we do know that uh, Tarantino likes Franco, so that's pretty cool. Uh, what else we have? Um, oh, yeah, also, too, the concept of a stolen diamond. Uh, Franco always did stolen jewels, stolen uh, diamonds, you know, uh, stolen gold, whatever, coins and stuff. So, yeah, there's a stolen diamond in this, which is a pretty interesting thing that he does all the time. Uh, used many times later in many films, um, all the way up, shit, quite a few, probably close to the end, too. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, these first two films were actually better than I thought they would be, which is kind of funny to say that because, you know, usually your first two films are always really good or whatever. But, um, yeah, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how slow or what, but they're both a lot better than I thought. Uh, and you see a lot of his style and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to watching the third and fourth film, even though I believe uh, they're in Spanish only. So I'm going to see, uh, I won't get as joy as much, but I'm going to see what I can do if I can uh, find another way for translation. And I know a little bit, so I'm still going to enjoy them. So, but uh, yeah, and those uh, the next films three and four, um, which are uh, the Queen of uh, the Queen of the Tabarin and Vampiresses 1930 uh, or Gold Diggers of 1930. Uh, those are going to be um, the f- next episode, episode 69, which will be the first episode of 2022. So we're ending. 2021 with a double feature episode and starting 2022 with another double feature episode and then after that on episode 70 we will return to the singular episodes with one of the mighty films in the jess franco canon the awful dr orloff which was uh his fifth film and the one that put him on many people's maps and made him a force to be discovered and put him in Spanish history as they credit him as like the first Spanish horror film, but he's uh, maybe like the second or something. But anyway, so yeah, that's really coming up. So hopefully you all look forward to that and dig that. So um, that'll be cool. All right. So uh, like I always say, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Franco Observer Podcast. You can please uh, download the episodes and uh, share them as well. Uh, please subscribe to the episodes. You know, they always drop every Wednesday morning. And uh, let's see, download, subscribe, all that, rate, share, all that good stuff. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, please do so at francoobserver at yahoo.com. And uh, any questions you have, I will answer them, all that good stuff. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Um, oh yeah, uh, we got a donation button on the, on the show episode page deal. So if you want to, uh, donate one time or reoccurring or however you want to do it, that's there for your option. Uh, of course, mission statement, praise and in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. Um, so yeah, once again, this will be the last episode of 2021. So uh, I've been doing this now uh, since November of 2020, basically uh, Halloween right around there. So I say November. Uh, It's been a little bit over there, 13 months now. So I want to say thank you very much for listening to these episodes. I hope uh, many of you have listened to them all or have been there from the start or joined on. I do appreciate you um, 
coming on board and listening every week. Um, we kind of have a good rhythm with everybody um, and a good steady audience. So please um, always feel free to let everybody know about the show. I do appreciate it. And um, even though things change and sands shift through the hourglass, uh, my hand will always be steady and I will always put out these episodes because uh, I don't quit, I don't stop, and I'm going to go through to the end. So hopefully we all have a good new year ahead. And I know 2021 was good and bad for a lot of people. For me personally, uh, it was a mixed bag. I had some really bad things and I had some really good things. So uh, I'm still blessed here to be sitting here talking to you with the roof over my head and uh, to be warm and to have an audience of people to listen to me talk about Jess Franco. So uh, thank you all once again for listening and uh, have a safe uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's and uh, love you all and see you in 2022. Adios amigos. Mm-hmm.